I think the way to apologize is to apologize saying, if that made you feel bad, I'm sorry, or I'm sorry that you feel this way, you know, and to say it more in a way that makes somebody disarmed and makes them feel like I actually understand what you're going through. I know why you're frustrated. I know how that could make you angry or how that could make you sad. And then to go into the discussion around, but this is where I'm coming from, or this is what I'm going to try to do next time to be a bit better. I found that to be also a really cool strategy to not only disarm people, but then make you make them feel like you're approaching again a conversation through kindness and empathy versus through just brute strength. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Oh My Curry Goodness, the first episode of season two. My name is Hamza Islam, and on each episode of Oh My Curry Goodness, I talk to Gen Zers from different fields about their story and the experiences that have shaped them into who they are today. My goal for this podcast is allowing my guests to be as authentic and honest as possible so that it allows myself and you guys as listeners to connect with the guest in a very unique way. And it also allows us to see the human element because while we all want to have success, unfortunately, we have a lot of challenges, failures, setbacks, obstacles that happen way more than successes. And of course, all my guests will be able to tell you that they have received or they have had a lot of challenges more than success. So being able to see what it's like to be them and putting ourselves in their shoes is really important. And I hope you guys continue to take each or I hope you guys continue to take lessons from each guest as you continue to write your own story. Now, this week, I am talking to Swish Goswami, who is the founder and CEO of Surf a white label loyalty and rewards platform that helps enterprises capture consumer data ethically, reward consumers sustainably, and monetize their audience effectively. I kind of like how that rhymes. His company has worked with several blue chip companies, including Netflix, Amazon Prime Gaming, L'Oreal, United Talent Agency, and EA or Electronic Arts. Swish Goswami, thank you so much for joining Oh My Curry Goodness. Thanks so much. Really appreciate the time and uh, awesome introduction, by the way. I love the concept behind this podcast and why you started it. Yeah, thank you so much. It's funny because I always try to work on the introduction. It's it's a learning process for me. As much as I love asking interesting questions, it's it's about grabbing the audience attention, which I know is something that you are really good at. And before we talk about entrepreneurship, one of the things that I really want to talk about that kind of stuck uh, with me is your love for public speaking. And I forgot to mention you are a four-time TEDx speaker, best-selling author of Young Entrepreneur, former debater representing Canada at World Schools Debating Championships. So one of the one of the reasons why I want to talk about public speaking is I am not a great debater, but I love being able to speak to an audience and just try to try to talk about my message, whatever whether it's like for school purposes or just for anything in general. My fear is not necessarily the idea of getting in front of an audience, but more so whether the message that I hope to send connects with the audience, regardless of who they are. I'm curious to know, as someone who loves public speaking, do you feel like you've overcome, because I know you love talking in front of people, but do you feel like, do you ever get nervous when you are able to, when, do you get nervous when you're speaking in front of people and hoping that they take few nuggets from from what you're presenting? 
Yeah, I think I, I definitely am still nervous. You know, I think I've given at this point probably over 250 talks now and uh, spoken around the world, different types of stages, whether it's TEDx, whether it's the World Business Dialogue, Harvard University, a bunch of marketing and entrepreneurship conferences around North America. Um I still get nervous even if I've even if I'm giving a 15 minute talk or even if I'm giving a one hour talk. Uh, and I think the reason why is because I generally care a lot about, like you mentioned, making sure that when I get up, I have good energy, I am confident, but I'm also leaving the audience with nuggets that they can go and act upon that very night or the next day. Um, so that's the main reason why I think I'm nervous is because you know, in life, if you're very passionate about something, you likely care a lot about it and you obviously don't want it to go wrong. And so I kind of view my nervousness in a good way where it's like, if I wasn't nervous, it probably means I just don't care <laughs> versus at least when I'm a little bit nervous before a talk, that adrenaline kick is actually really cool. It's addictive in my opinion. Uh, and it obviously shows that I care so much about what I'm doing when I get up on stage. What advice, or let me ask you this, because I obviously the, those nerves happen but how do you manage them? Because I think for one, it's one thing to say, okay, I need to do this. I need to do this. But then when it's, when it's at the heat of the moment, that's a completely different level of anxiety. And I don't know, maybe you can elaborate on this. One of the things I've learned when it comes to public speaking is to never focus too much into the future. So when you're about to present, don't focus on the audience clapping. I think one of my favorite podcasters, his name is Jay Shetty. He talked about how don't, he doesn't ever focus on the end of the presentation. It's more of like those those next couple of seconds or like the steps he's going to make before he addresses the audience. So for you, like, how do you handle or how do you handle those 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 uh, in the moment nerves? Let's call it that way. Yeah, again, I, I think one of the things that I've done um, is try to structure my talks around things that I know a lot about. Um, I think the only times I get really, really nervous when I speak is when I'm asked a question, for example, and I don't really have expertise about it. Um, so that's where I think for me, you know, when people hire me to talk, for example, I tell them very honestly before going up on stage, I'm only going to speak about things I know a lot about or have a lot of experiences within. If I don't know the answer to a question, I'll be very honest with you and just say, hey, I don't really know, but here's my opinion in terms of my best guess. So I think that's the best way to kind of counteract any nerves. I think as long as you're speaking about things that you've done, things that you know a lot about, it's very hard to get nervous about that. Um, obviously, some people have intrinsic stage fright. I think I've gotten over that quite a bit. Um, and I think for me, I typically don't care what people think about me as it is, which helps. Uh, when you get up on stage, I don't care you know, how people perceive me in terms of my voice. I don't think I care how people perceive me in terms of how I look, what I wear. Um, I think I do care, obviously, what I say and how people will interpret that. Um, but again, that's what comes down to, you know, my knowledge and my experiences, which I know I can control because I'm only speaking about that and nothing else. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I try not to think about things that are out of my control. And I try not to give too much credence to the audience to let them determine my happiness or my confidence before I talk. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I believe everything you said is really helpful. And I hope that people take away because public speaking is not an easy skill. Um, it's not just about talking, it's about connecting. Now, one of the things I just wanted to ask that because I that's I love public speaking. So I was, that was great to connect with you on that. But I know you're an entrepreneur and you founded Surf, an incredible, which is an incredible company, but you and I are human beings. And one thing that's another thing that's very you're very passionate about is mental health. 
because of the challenge mm -hmm. that you've experienced in your life. And there was something that you said that I thought was really interesting, which is you have said in the past how there's no such thing as being normal. It's only being human. And I'd love for you to talk about what that means, because for, you know, for a long time, I used to think that being normal and being human are the same, but it kind of seems like, and I know we might be going philosophical here, but it, it is still interesting that you kind of see it as, yes, they can have some similarities, but there are some differences and we should focus on being human as opposed to not just being normal. So I'd love for you to talk about what that, what more of what, more of what that means. Yeah, I think it, it spurred from a high school conversation that I was having. Um, I was very much involved in student politics. I was my student council president in high school. I was part of the Alberta Minister of Education Youth Advisory Council. And in a lot of these circles, I was coming across people that were suffering from mental health illnesses. And I, as a person who, you know, back then might not have gone through a lot of mental health illnesses, but definitely since then, in the last few years of building a company, I've definitely gone through my fair share of mental health issues and, and, and successes as well. I think I wanted to make a statement in high school about, hey, here's what I think about mental health. Um, obviously, like, well, like I mentioned, I, I didn't have a lot of experience going through too many issues with mental health in high school, but I obviously had my fair share of difficulties growing up, right? I, I am a first-generation immigrant. I moved to Canada when I was seven, eight years old. Um, I, you know, am ethnic, living in at the time, especially in Calgary back in you know the mid two thousands and and early twenty tens was a very white-dominated culture. Um, sports, people, society overall looked very different for me. And I think the biggest thing, obviously, is I, I have a lisp, right? I, I have a hard time saying my S's and R's properly and, um, you know, faced a little bit of bullying, nothing too crazy, but definitely faced my fair share of, can you repeat that? Or fair share of people making fun of me for my voice. Um, so I think that's what I wanted to convey in that message of there's no such thing as being normal. There's just being human is I do believe that every single person has gifts. Every single person has something they're uniquely smart or uniquely good at. I like to focus a lot of my time and energy when I meet people on that versus on their weaknesses or versus on things that are a little bit out of their control. You know, for me, my lisp, it's definitely gotten better. I actually oddly think that it only became better when I started speaking publicly more as opposed to being very shy and being to myself. Um, but there's no, you know, removing this out of my life. This is a part of who I am. And I personally think I'm normal because of it, um, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, that was really interesting. And yeah, thank you for being able to share like some of those experiences, such as the the fact that you had to re ask for or ask or repeat a certain phrase because you couldn't understand it. And similar to similar to you, I don't think I, I didn't go through too many difficulties, but I did have some, I did have challenges growing up. Um, I think it was, I think my dad used to say like, I didn't speak, I didn't, I couldn't make a, I couldn't say a complete sentence like in mm -hmm. English until like first yep. or second grade. So right. definitely an awkward experience. And I think it's just, and I'm still shy even today, which is weird because I have a podcast and I'm being able to connect with a lot of people all over the world, but it's still a challenge for me. Like even now it's like, you're talking to people, but you still have this fear of not necessarily social anxiety, but it's like mm -hmm. when you are talking to people, there's just this level of fear that you can't really, you, you for some reason can't control. So I'm glad we're able to connect with that. And I think 
at the end of the day, yeah, you are right. It's not about being normal. It's about being human and not yep. looking at things as strengths or weaknesses. Yep. Um, you, I, I saw that you, you, you talked about how you're first generation uh, moving from Canada. Uh, you live in Canada, but you were born in Singapore. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yep. And uh, I, I thought this was really funny because one of the sports you played growing up is cricket. And <laughs> I don't know if there, how many people, if people have been checking my podcast or have been following this, my story, but my parents are from Bangladesh, which is a country in South Asia. Uh, I don't, I don't know if Singapore is like that. I usually think Bangladesh, India, Pakistan is South Asia. Yep. And one of the most popular sports is cricket. Now, mm-hmm. I've brought in athletes on this podcast and they've told me what their sports have taught them about life. Now, I'm sure a lot of people in the United States and Canada will look at cricket and say, Swish or Hamza, how on earth are you able to play a sport that takes eight hours to finish? So, mm-hmm. you know what, whatever, that's their, that's their problem. But I do want to know, cause I also, I, cause I, I feel this way, like whatever, whatever sport you play, there are things you can take away from each sport that you can apply to your personal life. I want to ask you when it comes to cricket as weird as it is to many canadians and americans what are some skills you feel like you've learned from playing cricket that you feel like you've been able to apply in your personal life yeah i mean that's a great question first and foremost cricket is a very popular sport now thankfully in north america like it's becoming more and more popular it's great to see that there are so many canadian cricketers now especially that are playing in um, not the IPL yet, but the Canadian, uh, the Caribbean Premier League, CPL, which is the second biggest division, I think, bef- behind IPL. Um, it's also great to see that the United States, their team is more and more competitive. I think the United States actually almost made the World Cup this year, which was pretty cool. Um, so that's great, you know, that cricket is becoming more and more accepted. Um, I always told my friends growing up that I didn't understand the appeal of baseball. You know, people, <laughs> you know, the, the ball isn't thrown as fast uh the ball is not as hard and yet everybody around who are catchers are wearing gloves meanwhile in cricket the ball goes faster uh the ball is harder and people don't wear gloves (laughs) and so I'm like why would you want to watch that that is way more visceral way more physical of a sport than than I think baseball is in my opinion um that being said yeah with cricket I, I played a lot of sports growing up honestly like volleyball I danced I played basketball even today I played tennis um, I, I love my driving simulator. I believe, you know, racing is a sport. <laughs> and so I, I love being able to participate that participate in that more from like a sim racing online perspective. Um, but out of all the sports that I've done, I think cricket has taught me the most about teamwork. Um, two things that have come to mind for me is number one, we used to have a big thing on our cricket team when we'd want to amp the team up before a ball was being bowled. We'd all walk in from the field um, you know, we were all fielding, we'd all walk in slowly and we'd start just yelling wolf pack, wolf pack, wolf pack, wolf pack, wolf pack, getting louder and louder and louder before the ball is bold. Um, and I actually have used that for our existing team as well. Anytime I want to raise the level of engagement or get people a little bit more amped in our in our sinks or in our Friday team calls, we chant wolf pack, wolf pack, wolf pack, which I think is pretty cool. Um, the second thing is obviously to realize that in cricket, uh, you have to be very reliant on your team to win, right? It's 11 people on a field. Uh, if you're a fielder, I mean, yeah, you'll get the ball a couple of times, but at the end of the day, you're one of 11 people that need to do their job well. You know, there's a bowler that needs to do their job well. There's a wicket keeper behind the stumps that needs to do their job well. But beyond that, 
every other member of the team needs to focus in every single ball. And I, I, I honestly think cricket is cool because it doesn't matter where you're fielding, you might actually go through an entire game and not even have touched the ball once. Like there were times where I would be pay, like playing, you know, third man and I'd be at like the very back of the field behind the batsman and the ball typically doesn't come there very often. But that's the cool part is that even if the ball doesn't come to me, I every single delivery need to lock back in and focus and pretend like the ball is going to come to me that 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 delivery. So I think it's pretty cool. You know, the fact that you have a game that, yeah, it's very long, but it doesn't matter if you're batting or fielding. You really have to lock in every single delivery and you have to stay very focused and in the zone, which very, very few people can do, especially at a high level. For sure. And before I add on to that, I want to give a shout out to the USA cricket team because yes. they qualified for the 2024 mm-hmm. T20 World Cup. T20 is 120 balls for those who are wondering. Like each team quarter. Balls. <laughs> yeah. So shout out to the USA cricket team. But I, I think what you said is really is so true. And one of the things that I think of when it comes to cricket, I'm sure you might agree with this as well, is one, patience, because you can't like, and it's funny because as a Bangladesh cricket fan, I usually joke with my friends, like our games end in five minutes, we lose in five minutes, but mm-hmm. the, the, it's true. You have to be patient because you want to score as many runs as possible to make it difficult for the other team. If you're batting first, or if you're batting second, you want to, when you want to finish the game as quick as possible. But the last thing you want to do is put your, put your team in a situation where now that what you think was easy now becomes more difficult. So you have yep. to be really patient and knowing that. You can't just always play hero ball. You have yep. to you have to really be careful. The yep. second thing that really comes to mind is similar to patience, but technique, right? Because in baseball and cricket, hypothetically, you want to score either a home run or six runs, respectively. And I think yep. in podcasting or just anything you want to do, yes, you have a great idea. Yes, you're passionate about something, but you can't just go in and play the hero or try to do everything incredible at once. It takes mm-hmm. a sort of craft or artistry or planning. So I think patience and knowing that it's a process, no matter how long, how easy, quote unquote, the target is. And also yep. the fact that even though you want to be able to do that incredible thing, that you have to have a plan. You can't just go in and expect everything to go well just because if you do, you put your you put yourself and your team in a much difficult situation. So that's where I kind of see it that. But yeah, that's where I'm kind of, that's where I'm looking at cricket. Definitely agree with you, 100%. Now, athletes, I learned about this a lot with athletes, but it applies in entrepreneurship or just in life in general, which is, and you mentioned this in the beginning where there's things you can control and things that you can't control. One thing that no one on this planet can control is the future. And mm-hmm. well, most of the time you can't control the future. I'll take, I'll say that you can't control the future. You could put in your best effort and no matter how great of a performance you can have, you can still lose. That's not yep. just sports. That's also in entrepreneurship. And I know you have done incredible things as an entrepreneur, but every single day there's questions of, okay, what's, what are, what are some of the challenges? What are some things we need to do today? What are some, uh, what are some things we need to attack? And yep. one of the questions that's, that can be difficult to answer is, is what's going to happen in the future. So obviously I'm not going to be, you're not going to be able to answer the question, how are you going to handle the future? Because we don't know. There's so many challenges that come along the way. What I do want to ask is how do you embrace the future? 
And I learned a lot. I learned, I've learned so much from athletes because they're in the moment. They're not really worried about what's going to happen one hour, two hours from now. So I'm curious to know, because sometimes you have this, this nervousness, like, oh, I'm worried we might fail, or I'm worried that, you know, it might not go well. I just finished exams for college. So every exam, it's like, what if I fail? Instead of looking at it as the opportunity to be successful or the opportunity to tackle this or, you know, to do well. So for you, obviously, you have your highs and your lows, but how do you embrace the future? Because that's not something that a lot of people are able to incorporate in their mindset. Yeah, I try to boil the future down a little bit into like a, a simpler lens, if you will. I, I try not to think too far out. Um, I have obviously aspirations. And, um, you know, if you ask me right now, like, hey, what do you want to do in your 30s or 40s? I could probably give you a general answer. But I, I think I've moved away from that system that I used to have when I was like 18, 19 years old, where I would tell you, oh, here's exactly what I'm going to do when I'm 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, kind of pigeonholing myself to like a specific time or a specific age that I need to accomplish something or start something by. Um, I think it's also cool that, you know, for me, again, I have a high level, you know, understanding in terms of my desires and aspirations kind of far out, but I have a very refined view of the future when it comes to like the next six to 12 months. And I'm very diligent in terms of reflecting on that to think, okay, what do I want to accomplish in the first half of 2024? I've thought a lot about it already. And I'll probably do even more thinking during the Christmas holidays. But that's something that I think I, I, I'm excited by because when I'm able to then start putting specific things down that I know are very achievable because I'm not having to wait five years, I have to literally wait one month to kick off 2024. I think it's far easier for me to start putting a plan together that's actually achievable, that's based more in reality than just a far-fetched dream. Um, obviously, there's times where you wake up and you feel doubtful. There are times where you feel anxious. There are times where you think, well, what if this doesn't work out? Well, what if my health, you know, degrades? What if my family health, you know, degrades? What if my friends go through a really tough time? Like there's always, you know, there's no shortage of anxiety and doubts in the world that you can conjure up in your mind. But again, I think going back then to the positives and looking at, you know, here's my next six to 12 months and here's some of the really cool, exciting things that I can look forward to. Um, that's something that I try to do as much as possible. Um, and again, I try to keep my goals very grounded to like that six to 12 month range, because I find that to be a little bit more achievable than, you know, setting a kind of arbitrary date back when I'm in my thirties that I likely wouldn't hit, but also who knows, maybe there's another bigger and better opportunity that comes my way in the next few years that I'm going to be more open to if I'm not pigeonholing myself to accomplish something by, by a certain age. It reminds me of, there's all this, this. I'm going to use um, exercise terms because it's like similar to sports. But if you want to do 100 pushups in one setting, you can't do 100 pushups in one setting. You have to, you know, start small and then compound that. So maybe one day you do five, one day you do 10, another day you do 15, and then so forth. So I think the reason why I bring that example up is the fact that, yeah, it's it, it's it's having achievable goals. And that's not like a bad thing. It's more of like, this is, let's, let's, if we want to, we, we obviously want that really big thing, but we also have small targets that we want to try to accomplish so that we can get to that big goal. I know you also have a podcast uh, about racing. And so one of the, one of the things I worry about when it comes to podcasting is, you know, what, not worrying too much about what 2024 is going to look like 2025, 2026, 2027. It's more about, can I, can I just focus on one guest at a time? 
Um, I think one, there was a book I read about the other day, which is the power of one more. So try to do things one more time. Uh, the reason why I think that book is really incre is incredible is that, again, the future far out, it, if you focus too much on the far out, you get anxiety, you get a lot of doubt, like you mentioned. But at the same time, if you are able to focus on that next thing, then it's much more achievable. And then also in a, in a weird way, and I, can, I wish I could have a better understanding of this, but it's like you're when you're able to focus on doing something one more time, it feels like you are somewhat closer to reaching your end goal. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm still like, I'm trying to like understand that part of the book, but it's like, you want to be able to obviously do that really incredible thing, but one, having achievable goals. And then also secondly, focusing on trying to live for like the next day or trying, what's that thing in wars, like in wars, like trying to fight another day, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's a cool way to live, right? And living more in the moment. I've been trying to work on that for a while, just like living in the present, living in the moment. And I think, you know, I think the only way to tangibly do that is to accept what you currently have. And I think the reason why I had a difficulty growing up, especially in my early 20s, when it came to living in the moment is because I was never satisfied with what I had. I was always thinking, oh, I need this. I need that. I need to get to this point. I need to get this award. I need to get this recognition. I need to be at this specific stage or I need to meet these specific people to truly be happy. Um, versus, I mean, right now, like I have been telling so many people that 2023 has been like one of the happiest years of my life in terms of not only like feeling happy and feeling grateful, but just feeling at peace, feeling like, wow, I've I've done a lot. I am currently doing a lot. And what I've taken on, I feel very happy about. It brings me a lot of energy. It brings me a lot of happiness. It makes me feel very positive every day. Um, and I think that's the best way to live in the moment is when you start really just not only being grateful and being happy, but just being at peace with what you have. And, and it doesn't mean that that ambitious, hungry fire in me is gone. <laughs> it's definitely not gone. But I think you know, even if tomorrow, like I pressed a button and I said, okay, you know what, like, I'm not going to accomplish anything more in life. I'd be, I'd be fine with that. Um, because I have, you know, the existing projects I'm working on that really, really excite me. Like if you had to tell me you have to work on surf for the rest of your life, you have to continue to build out the track limits podcast. You need to continue to speak about your book. Like I'd be more than happy to continue to do all of this for the rest of my life, which I think is, is very important to kind of getting grounded and feeling at peace. Let's talk about gratefulness because it's funny. I interviewed a mental health activist and we talked about the idea of gratefulness. And one of the things that she focuses or she talks about is not being, not just being grateful about all the good things that have happened in your life, but also the challenges and the obstacles that have come, come along your way, whether that's within your, your passion project, and I, I know it's a company, but like, let's just say passion project, cause as an entrepreneur, or even in your personal life. And one of my favorite questions to ask on the podcast is, and, and I want and I ask this because it really allows me to put myself in your shoes or people's shoes is, what's an experience that you look back and at the time you thought it was the worst experience or like the worst day period of time in your life, but in a way you're also grateful that you went through that experience because it made you become a stronger person today. I want to ask you because I mean, obviously people can learn more about the comp your company and what you've done. And obviously, you know, I mentioned the TEDx speaking, 
obviously you've done so many public speaking engagements. You come across as a person that loves talking to people. So clearly on the outside meeting for meeting you the first time, you seem like the type of guy that has had, it feels like you have everything figured out, but at the end of the day, and obviously you know this better than everyone else, cause you know yourself better than everyone else. There are challenges and experience that you've went through. So what would you yep. say were some of like the worst experience that you were like, oh, I hate this. But now looking back today, you're like, you know what? Thank, I'm grateful that I went through that because I've become a much better person today. I think there's two that come to mind. One's professional, one's a little bit more personal. I think on the professional side, um, having to make layoffs during the pandemic, that was that was very tough. You know, and, and we hired very quickly in 2018 and in 2019, you know, we ramped up to a team of around 32, 33 people. Um, we had people that we hired that were dads and moms with kids at home. Uh, people that we had interacted with because we're, you know, even though we were a fully remote team, we were a very tight knit team, you know, talking almost every day as a team, doing things like Friday team calls with a Friday cheers where we bring family members on camera and get them to chat with each other, um, doing a bunch of retreats, doing a bunch of meetups in various cities. Um, so that was really, really tough because when you kind of get to that realization of like, oh my God, you know, you kind of have to sacrifice the arm to preserve the body type thing. It sucks. It, it It's terrible. It doesn't feel great. You look at people, you get on a Zoom call with them. You got to tell them you're you're having to lay them off. They, you know, for a lot of the calls we had were blindsided by it, didn't see it coming. Um, and there's obviously only so much you can say to make them feel better because, you know, if I got laid off like that, I wouldn't feel great either. Um, so I think that was definitely one of the toughest moments. But again, going into like why I think that was one of the most valuable things I could have done is because it, a, you know, as an employer, it, it builds thick skin, you build character from it, you start realizing uh, that sometimes you have to make tough decisions, and you're doing it for the benefit of the rest of the team, and also for the investors that you have a fiduciary duty to. Um, you also very much realize how to do it properly. Like, you know, if I had to ever go down another series of layoffs, knock on wood, but if I ever had to do that again, there's a few things that probably change to make it an easier process, more transparent process, an easier process for people that we were laying off. Um, but again, I think it at the end of the day is something I had to do. And once I did that, very little problems I think came across my professional way that made me feel uncomfortable uh, or, or something that I wasn't, you know, able to do, if that makes sense, emotionally. Um, the second is mental health related. Like, again, like I mentioned in high school and in college, didn't go through much when it came to like mental health issues. Um, and then I think it was around 2021 when I had, you know, some of the worst mental health issues that I've ever faced in my life, you know, panic attacks, anxiety attacks in the middle of night, waking up with cold sweats. Uh, one time I got a panic attack on a plane that was about to take off, which is probably the worst place you could ever have a panic attack. And I had to hold hands with the woman that was sitting in the middle seat beside me, uh, telling her that I was afraid to fly because I didn't want to obviously tell her I was going through a panic attack. Um, so yeah, those moments sucked. Again, you know, it was through the support of my friends and family that I was able to get through it. Um, I, you know, I went, I went in December to Calgary back home where my mom is and I just remember telling my mom, I'm like, I don't know what's happening to me, but I just think I'm going through something and I need to go and get checked out. And like, I got a full x-ray, I got a, a chest exam, I did a stress test where they make you run on a treadmill. Um, I did all of that. And every test came back as like, you are normal, you are a healthy individual. And so that really got me thinking like, oh my God, not only do I have to really protect 
my physical body, I need to protect my mental body and and my mental, you know, framework capacity, whatever you want to call it. And so I started focusing a lot more on that in 2022, started saying no to things that I couldn't handle, um, started delegating more, uh, started focusing way more on being grateful for small wins, not just looking after really big wins, but every single day, journaling, writing down things that I was grateful for, writing down things that I was super happy about. Still obviously writing about things that I wasn't happy about, which I think is great to like let it go and not let it consume your mind, but just putting it on paper or putting it in your phone as a note. I think that was a really cool exercise that I started to do. And I continue to do that even to this very day. There was some, I think this kind of leads into one thing I another thing I want to talk about, but when it comes to the first idea, which is laying off people, I think mm-hmm. those are really difficult conversations to have. And I know one of the things that you care a lot about is creating the sense of community or a family. Um, yep. It's like you focus more on making an impact rather than focusing on income. And yep. so for you, obviously, like that's a difficult conversation. And especially, like you said, like the fact that there are moms and dads helping out that's never an easy decision. So I think, I think one there, what uh, you meant, like how you mentioned, which is the importance of developing thick skin, but yeah, not, not thin skin, sorry, thick skin. Yeah. Thick skin, because as an entrepreneur, you're, you're going to have to make those, you're gonna have to make really difficult decisions every day. Uh, One of my favorite podcasts to listen to aside from Jay Shetty is diary of a CEO with uh, Stephen Bartlett. And he said, uh, if you can't make, small decisions you can't ever really make those really big decisions and it's not to yep. say that laying off people is a small decision by any means but it's like you really have to develop that habit of having those difficult conversations and then making those difficult decisions because yep. while it may hurt in the short term it's going to be better for you and the company in the long term yeah now yeah oh i i don't know if you're going to say anything but well just to say i think the team will appreciate you for that as well right like i think the team saw me when I did that, you know, obviously the team, there were their immediate reaction was fear, right? Like, oh my God, am I also going to get laid off, or are we going to have, are we going through a tough time? And it took a few months to rebuild that, you know, trust, but also excitement among the team after the the first and by the way only round of layoffs, thankfully that we had to make in the last four years. Um, but once that excitement came back. I think a lot of team members commented on like my leadership style being different, but also being a little bit more assertive. Um, You know, yeah, I'm still here as like the person that wants to build community. I want to cater to your interests. I want to put you in the best position to succeed. I know as an employer that I'm working for my employees. It's not the other way around. But I think it's also important for employees to now see me as, okay, this is a person who, you know, yeah, he's great. He's funny sometimes and he's nice and he's a kind person, but when he needs to get work done, he's going to get work done. And when he has a target that he wants us to hit, he's going to push us to get there. Um, and I think that was a benefit as well that came from from that experience. I want to now combine your passion for mental health and your passion for entrepreneurship. And from a broad sense, I think when it comes to mental health, people focus on the importance of kindness, empathy, uh, being understanding of people's circumstances. And when it comes to entrepreneurship, that idea of developing thick skin, being strong, not being afraid to tackle issues. I think this is an issue that happens, especially with maybe guys. And I know if this is an awkward question, we can obviously remove it. But uh, I think as uh, what's really difficult is trying to balance the idea of being kind as well as being strong. Because if sometimes it feels like we have to either we can we have to 
I can't speak today. It has to, it feels like we have to have either of the two instead of having both. Like you have to be kind or you have to be strong. But it, sometimes it feels like, like, especially in entrepreneurship, it's like you have to be the strong person. You can't afford to be kind because it's all about money and everything. So in your experience, and obviously we can cut this out if you don't, if this question doesn't serve any value, but how do you try to balance being nice and being kind? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, especially as like, you know, again, like you mentioned, right? Men, I think you're programmed to to be stronger, more assertive, just naturally. I think women are leaps and bounds ahead of us when it comes to emotional intelligence. They typically have it uh, at a very young age compared to men. Um, for me, you know, I grew up around a lot of very assertive and dominant women. Uh, my mother, for example, um, the kind of friends that I put in my life, I have a lot of girlfriends who are uh, very like strong, like they're very assertive. They'll tell you what they want. They're brilliant. They're ambitious. Um, and I think that makes me a better individual for lack of a better word, because when it, when it came to like looking at that balance between being kind and strong, I always felt that you should approach the situation very similar to how my mom or my friends would, which is approach any situation with empathy and kindness and only use strength when necessary. Meaning if you absolutely need to deal with a situation and it spirals and it gets out of hand and you absolutely need to get it back into line or back in check, then yeah, use strength. But if you're coming into a situation, especially after the pandemic where everybody I feel got messed up because of it, uh, and as a remote team where I'm not actually meeting my employees in person, there's some people I've never even met ever, but I'm engaging with them over Zoom or Hangouts. I genuinely think that at any point of discomfort, any point where I feel like I need to give them a talking, I'm going to approach that conversation with empathy, with kindness, with trust versus coming in heated or with too much strength that might overwhelm them or might make them feel like I'm disconnected from what they're going through and what they're feeling. This also, by the way, is another lesson I've learned from just past relationships, maybe that I've gone wrong, um, is anytime a person complains about something you've done, just apologize. Like, unless it's absolutely absurd and unheard of, and you have to fight back against it, just apologize. But I think the way to apologize is to apologize saying, if that made you feel bad, I'm sorry, or I'm sorry that you feel this way. You know, and to say it more in a way that makes somebody disarmed and makes them feel like I actually understand what you're going through. I know why you're frustrated. I know how that could make you angry or how that could make you sad. And then to go into the discussion around, but this is where I'm coming from, or this is what I'm going to try to do next time to be a bit better. I found that to be also a really cool strategy to not only disarm people, but then make you make them feel like you're approaching again, a conversation through kindness and empathy versus through just brute strength couple of things before I let you go. The first thing, the first question is, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask on the podcast, because it's one of those like human moments, because yeah. obviously you are passionate about what you do and everything, the root of everything you do is coming from a want. Like I want to do this, not a, I have to do this kind of thing. Yeah. However, there are moments in your life where you have to do things that you don't want to do, or you don't want to do, such as the idea of laying people off. That's obviously not, a, that's not an easy decision. Mm -hmm. So in your case, even though you're passionate about entrepreneurship and mental health, 
And obviously you've talked about how laying off people, like that's not an easy decision. You don't like doing that. What are some other things about, what are some things that you don't like? What are some other things that you don't like about the things that you're passionate about? What are some other things that I don't like about the things I'm passionate about? Well, I mean, I can name for, for each one, I, the projects even that I'm working on. I mean, with surf, um, I'm generally a type of person that loves talking to people and pitching. I hate fundraising now. <laughs> uh, you know, as somebody, again, we've raised a ton of money. We've done three rounds of financing. The last round of financing, I kid you not, it took about a year and a half to close that. Uh, and the reason why I hate fundraising is because I try again to control things that I can control. And I hate how much of fundraising comes down to things that are out of your control, right? Especially in the last year and a half with the type of market climate that we've been put into um, with obviously interest rates going off the roof with so many companies having to make layoffs with so many venture funds now, you know, totally changing their thesis and investing in different types of companies that they might've funded two, three years ago. It sucks to have to raise money in a climate that is a little bit out of your control, right? Like, again, I try to control my pitch. I try to control how I show up. I try to control how responsive I am over email. I try to you know, control the the answers that I give in a, in a call or over email or the deck that I send over or the data room that I send over. But at the end of the day, like I've had so many VCs come back and be like, I'm sorry, we're not making any new investments right now. We're only funding existing companies to help them get through this period. And I'm just like, darn it. So that would be number one is when it comes to business, if I ever had to run another company again, I would try as much as possible to bootstrap it, make sure we don't raise too much money early on, make sure we're not reliant on fundraising. So i.e. being profitable ideally from day one would be great, or at least getting to profitability a lot earlier than we've ever done, I think would be awesome. Um, for track limits and the podcast that I run, I, I think the main thing, which I think the whole team would agree to is travel. You know, I love traveling. I think we we did a ton of traveling this year, probably, you know, over 100 flights, you know, probably 140, 150 flights this year. Uh, but it, it can definitely get you out of your routine. So whether it's I want to work out more, I want to see my friends more, I want to play tennis every week, I want to, you know, wake up at a particular time, go to bed at a particular time, have a very kind of consistent routine day over day and build up my momentum and confidence. It's very, very hard to do that with traveling. So that would be the only con for track limits is, you know, we built this podcast. We wanted to make sure we weren't doing it virtually. That was our thesis. We're going to go to wherever our guests are located. It doesn't matter where you're located. We're going to fly to you. We're going to bring our camera, our lighting equipment, our audio equipment, and we're going to set everything up in your gym, your home, the track, wherever you are. And so I think the reason why, obviously, we have to travel is because it's ingrained in our thesis as the podcast to do that. Um and I think the final thing I'll mention, not to kind of drag on too long here, but the, the final you know passion, if you will, that I have is very much around public speaking, like you mentioned. And you know, this is just maybe my opinion is the one thing I do hate about public speaking is I find the insistence around keynote speeches to be a little bit annoying. I, I personally, as a speaker, find the most valuable portion of my talk to be when people ask me questions and I can directly answer their question. It elevates the conversation. It makes it more relatable. It makes it more direct. I would love, in my opinion, to do that more than giving a 45-minute keynote with slides that literally no one is going to remember the next day. 
So that's why for me, whenever I talk publicly, I, I now talk with no slides. Um, if I am doing a keynote, I try to keep it to 10, 15 minutes, and then we go right into Q&A. But I actually prefer the format of a fireside chat where you have a moderator come up, they interview me, maybe I'll kick a few questions back to them. And then we open up the discussion to the entire audience for like 30, 40 minutes to ask questions and really get deep into some of the topics that I mentioned. Yeah, thank you so much for being able to share those. I think that's really interesting because again, it gives you that insight as to like what it's like to be you. And even though there are things you like, there are some things you don't like. Now, <laughs> yeah. I I also like, I mean, obviously you're, uh, you're, you're a guest on my podcast and I would love to have in-person events, but I don't have mm -hmm. that. So I'm a bit jealous. But if you were to ask me what, <laughs> if you were to ask me one thing I don't like about my podcast, which is aside from audio and stuff is doing the research on the people that I'm interviewing because- yep. One of the things I, and I, I know you do this a lot, which is you love to ask really thought provoking, insightful questions, as opposed to those common interview questions. And I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus, but it's like, people want to see those like interesting, weird, uh, like those unique questions. And so um, even though I, your podcast is different from my podcast, I'll be sure to check more episodes because I feel like the way you ask questions, because I saw your trailer before you uh, went on, the way you ask certain questions is really interesting. So I'm always willing to learn from different podcasters because I want to be great. And I think to be the best, you got to learn from the best. Uh, yeah. And I mean, you're bang on, by the way, about what you just said there. I think, you know, the best podcasts are ones that come. Yeah, you have to do your research. You have to know what the guest has done. I think the worst question you could have ever asked me was, tell me about your story. And I'm just like, okay, well, I'm now going to give you a five minute answer that you could have just researched on your own. And we could go far deeper now into any one of my experiences without me having to start from ground zero. Um, but I think you're you're following the right people. You know, if you're following people like uh, Steve Bartlett, Jay Shetty, I mean, I met Jay five years ago before he even started his podcast. And he was coming out of this, you know, phase of being a monk. He had written one book. He's starting to post a lot more on social media. I think one of the early viral clips he had was like a Huffington Post video that he did on happiness. Um, and I met him in New York and to be able to see his work ethic and it's every single day, there's something new coming out. There's whether it's related to the book, whether it's related to his personal brand, his thoughts that he's sharing through an infographic or even the podcast, you know, definitely someone to look up to for sure. Uh, and, and the questions he asks are, you know, incredible. You know, he gets people who are celebrities to come on and, and start crying on his show because they don't typically get those questions in any other media interview that they that they do. Absolutely, for sure. My last question is about your mindset in that a lot of people on the, on this podcast, and I'm sure in life in general, will say their biggest enemy is themselves. Mm. Now, obviously, like you said, there's things that you can control and you can't control. But yep. given that you've had so much success in your journey, what tools have you been able to equip? How, what tools are you able to equip to help you overcome or deal with those negative thoughts in your mind? Because they are always going to come in your mind no matter what, but having the right mindset or right tools to help your mind get rid of those negative evil versions saying that you're yep. stupid or you're, you're bad. Um, having, that, having, that, having the right tools or the right mindset is important. So what are some ways you've been able to deal with that negative self-talk for lack of a better yeah. Yeah, I mean, two two things I've done is number one, surround myself obviously with the right people, whether it's my co-founder, whether it's 
the the rest of the podcast hosts, for example, at Track Limits, whether it's my my family, my friends, these are people who, by the way, they're critically honest about things they don't like about me, but they're also very supportive, right? They're very supportive anytime I do something or I have a question or I'm feeling very doubtful of myself. I know there's like four or five people that I could call right away and they'd give me a really good talk and they'd, they'd uplift me and they'd, they'd continue to motivate me and remind me of things that I, again, should be grateful for, or things that I should be proud of. Um, so that'd be number one. I think number two, personally speaking, is is traveling. I know I mentioned it as a con before, but it's also great to be able to go and realize just how big the world is, you know, how big the world is, how different cultures work, how different cultures eat, how different cultures operate on a daily basis. It starts to really put your problems into a vacuum and make you feel like you're, you're this, you're, you're a small little ant in a microcosm, in a, in a, sorry, in a macrocosm, in a huge ecosystem. Uh, and so I think it's nice whenever you feel doubtful or anxious to just view your problems as, you know, there are problems, you should obviously face them, but you know, there are people out there that definitely have it worse. And there are people out there that they're not complaining, they're getting on with their day. And I think you should too. Um, and actually, the final thing I, I will mention when it comes to that, those kind of anxious or, or doubtful moments um, is being in motion. I, I also find that just keep working, like there's going to be down days. Uh, I again, even now don't have uh, a week, for example, where I feel like, oh, every single day I'm waking up and I'm getting up on the right side of the bed and I'm getting up and feeling super motivated and amped up to do a TEDx talk. It's like, no, I am. I'm getting up sometimes and I'm feeling a little bit groggy and there are times where I'm getting up and I'm feeling a little bit anxious or there are times where I'm getting up and I'm feeling like I actually don't want to get out of bed um, because I am not ready to have the day of calls or day of meetings that I have. Um, and I think the days where you then take those moments and you show up and at the very end of the day, when you go back to bed, you look at yourself or think to yourself, oh my God, at like literally 12 hours ago or 13 hours ago, I wanted to not get out of bed. And yet I got through all of that. It's the best feeling to be able to overcome those initial feelings, to be able to get to the end of the day and feel super proud of yourself and super amped that you showed up and you were constantly in motion. That's, in my opinion, a great thing for me when it comes to getting over anxiety and doubts that I have. I'm definitely going to uh, apply those things in my life. And I hope listeners uh, tuning in will do that as well. But Swish, I know you are running an empire. There's so many things that you are tackling. But I just want to say thank you so much for being the first guest for season two for Oh My Curry Goodness. Thank you for all the incredible insights that you have brought on, not just with that question, but overall. And good luck with everything. And I'm going to be following your podcast and hopefully learning how learning from uh, amazing podcasters like you. But thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be a part of this podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Hamza. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. If you guys like what you saw, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at the OMCG Podcast for more information on guests, preview clips, and more. Please continue to support this podcast in the future, and I can't wait to see you guys in the next episode.